our mothers and attendants. I was uh, reading uh, a book the other day, and I thought this was so great uh, that uh, it just uh, came upon my, uh, my reading right now. But a man dedicated the book that he was writing to to his mothers, and, and it said, uh, To my mothers, one gave me life, and the other gave me my wife. And I just thought that was so great. And, uh, and so, again, we appreciate you uh, mothers this morning, and uh, we especially want to remember those uh, that maybe this is a little bit of a tougher day. And so uh, we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, but again, uh, we are appreciative of you being here this morning. I think there's a reason why we often hear the term motherly affection. You've heard that term, right? Motherly affection. Uh, We don't often hear the the opposite of that, uh, fatherly affection, and and I can understand why, right? When when we're a child and we get hurt, we get a boo-boo, who do we usually run to? You know, it's usually mom, right? I know my kids, uh, they run to mom because they know dad's going to say something like, you're going to be okay, or go and tell mom, you know, because, uh, because it's motherly affection, right? Not, not fatherly affection. Well, Bible writers uh, were similar, uh, had similar styles as well. And I want to point out something to you if you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But they did this as well. You know, when Paul was writing to his letters to these churches or to uh, other Christians, to other converts, he would often would refer to them as his children, uh, his children in the faith. And so he would take the perspective when he was writing to them as a parent. And, uh, of course, Paul was a man. And so we would assume that sometimes, uh, you know, that that when he would write to them as a, a parent, that he would write to them as the perspective of a father. Uh, but. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 6, 14 through 16 is an example of that, where he's writing to the church, and he's admonishing them, and he says, as your father in the faith, you know, I'm writing to you these things to, you know, you need to get these things straight. But there were times where he would write to them in a motherly fashion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just notice with me, I just want to read these few verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And I just thought that was very interesting. As Paul's writing to the the church here in Thessalonica, he says to them, listen, I could have asserted my authority as an apostle, or we could have as well. uh, uh, But instead, I came to you as a mother, right, gentle with this motherly affection. As we uh, go throughout this lesson this morning, we're going to put ourselves uh, this morning in the place of a mother that we read about in Scripture. And again, I'm not just talking about the, the, the moms out here, the females out here, but we all are going to put our, our, ourselves in these motherly shoes. Now, this isn't a typical Mother's Day sermon, you know, that where we pick out maybe a, a mother in the Scriptures and sort of talk about her godly characteristics. But we're going to be uh, talking about, as you see up here on the board, 
the, the idea of the Lord's Supper, but looking at, at it through the eyes of the mother of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to discuss here this morning. Although scripture never records that event for us, we know it happened. You know, Mary's first communion, the first time that she sat down and partook of the bread and, and the juice. And so maybe we're, we're looking at the Lord's Supper through the eyes of Mary, again, the mother of Jesus. Hopefully we can appreciate better just what this memorial means that we're going to take place here in just a few minutes. Now, let's talk about Mary for a moment. You know, information about Mary is sort of vague within the scriptures. I can think of about six times that she comes up. Uh, number one, of course, is at Jesus's birth, at his infancy. Uh, Matthew chapters one and two, we get Joseph's uh, sort of portrayal of it. In Luke chapter one and two, we see it through the eyes of Mary. And re- remember this, the angel Gabriel comes to, to Mary and says, listen, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. Now, of course, Mary at this time, she was a virgin. She didn't know man uh, or know a man, but he says to her, you will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son and you will name him Jesus. And she, she, Mary, she is the one who God chose to bring his son into the world through to be a parent of this child. Right. Uh, What type of woman was Mary must have been? Right? Who would you entrust your children to? You know, just think about that this morning. Would you just entrust your children to anyone? Uh, probably not. Right? So who did God entrust to take care of his, his son, his only begotten son, as he enters into the world, into the flesh? And it's Mary. Right? Mary's the one who God chooses. And that tells us something about her godly characteristics. That tells us something about the influence that she's going to have on this child. We fast forward about 12 years in Luke chapter 2, at the end of Luke chapter 2, when we see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. This is the only time in the scriptures we read about Jesus uh, as a younger uh, child. And so here, Jesus, you remember this account very well, probably, that Jesus and the family, they go to Jerusalem uh, to take part in the feast. And of course, as they're coming back, as they're leaving Jerusalem, uh, there's that big caravan of people, but they get about a day's journey away. And where's Jesus? Nobody knows where Jesus is. And so they have to turn around. Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple, preaching and teaching, going about his father's business. And, we, and we're told from that point on that, you know, that, that Jesus complied, that he obeyed and submitted to his mother, Mary. The wedding feast at Cana, that's the third time we see Mary in the scriptures in in John chapter 2. This is referred to by most people as the very first miracle that Jesus performs. But uh, it also tells us that it's the first miracle that he performed in Cana. And I think that's probably more accurate here that uh, he has performed miracles uh, by this point. But this was the first one that he performed here in Cana. Because if you recall, remember they're at that wedding feast and, and the wine has run out. And Mary says to the servants, listen... You do what my son tells you to do. And why would she say that unless she understood that Jesus could do some things? And of course, Jesus turns that water back into the wine and it's being served at that wedding. And that's the third time we read about Mary. The fourth time is a little bit later in Jesus's ministry. Remember that that, that Mary and her brothers, they come and they try to interrupt Jesus's preaching in Matthew chapter 12. Right? Some of the people say to Jesus as he's teaching, listen, uh, your mother and your brothers, they're here. They're, they want to see you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? But it's those who do the will of God. You know, apparently they were a little bit concerned about what Jesus was teaching and preaching. And so they were coming to take him away. 
right, to get him out of that situation. And so that's the fourth time. The fifth time, of course, is at the cross, John chapter 19. You know, that's a pretty solemn time for any mother. How tragic to be there at the foot of the cross as your son was hanging there. We can only imagine what she's going through. With only his few last breaths, some of the last words that Jesus said, Woman, behold your son. And then he looks at his apostle John and says, Behold your mother. And it's amazing to think that in the last few moments of Jesus' life, he's still thinking of his mother and uh, getting the care that she's going to have through the Apostle John for for that time being. And then finally, the sixth time that we read about Mary in the Scriptures is is in Acts chapter 1. Right after Jesus ascends into heaven, the the disciples of Jesus, they all gather in that upper room. Uh, We read the, the 11 remaining apostles. Jesus and his brothers who are now apparently believing that Jesus is the Christ because they're too as well. And we're told that in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, from that point forward, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Well, those are the six times that we read about Mary in the scriptures. But what about that one time that we don't read about her in the scriptures? What about that time where she is, again, sitting down with the saints, about to partake in the Lord's Supper for the very first time? What's going through her mind? You know, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 lets us know, uh, right after the church is established, that, that there was some things going on, right? That the, that the Christians, that the saints were gathering and they were continually devoting themselves to certain things. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Right? They were listening to the apostles' teaching. Uh, they were praying with one another. They, they were giving with one another. Uh, and again, they were partaking of that Lord's Supper. You know, all five acts of worship are mentioned there except for singing. But that's what they were doing. Every first day of the week, they would gather together to do that. But again, my question for us this morning is what about that first, first day of the week? The saints are, were doing as Jesus instructed them. Remember, right before he dies, do this in remembrance of me. We have it written down there on that table right there. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. This is my body. Eat it. Take, take the, uh, this juice, this fruit of the vine. This is my blood. Drink it. Again, think of Mary in this position. What was her mind thinking? Where was her focus? What was she engaged in? And then think about you and I. Where are our minds during the Lord's Supper? What are our thoughts? What are our emotions? You know, I think we can improve our mindset of the Lord's Supper when we think back to Mary. You know, some 2,000 years ago, Christians gathered to worship like we're doing here this morning. Now, they didn't have a nice building like this, air-conditioned, padded seats. They didn't have these prepackaged communion cups. But maybe they rented a room. You know, maybe they were in someone's home. But they probably, they talked probably quite a bit about the resurrected Jesus, right? Because it was fresh on their minds. And they probably talked about how Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. You know, it probably started clicking with them. That, you, know, you remember what Isaiah wrote about that suffering servant? That was Jesus. I can see those things now. And they sang songs and they prayed and they, again, they shared. They had this fellowship. But they would eventually got to that part where they were going to take the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, a very emotional uh, aspect, a very emotional experience for them all, but especially for one. Can you imagine Mary for the first time? You know, what was it like? Was she weeping? Was she crying uncontrollably? Were her friends throwing her arms around her? Of course, we don't know. You know, her son, again, uh, when Joseph had that dream 
uh, back in Matthew chapter 1, the, uh, that dream that said you shall, uh, you're going to have a son and you shall name him Emmanuel. You know, Emmanuel meaning God with us. And that wasn't a proper name that he was to be called, but it was a description of who Jesus was. Right? God with us, Emmanuel. But he was also Mary's son. He was also her son who died a violent death on the cross. Again, have you ever thought what Mary was going through when she was partaking of that supper? So again, that's what I want us to consider this morning is where was Mary? Where was her disposition? Where were her thoughts, her feelings? And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, where are our thoughts? Where is our focus here this morning? Because I think if we look through the eyes of his mother this morning, as we do that, that we'll come to appreciate it a little bit more. So let's talk about a couple of things. So again, where was Mary's disposition? I think number one, it was gratitude. Gratitude. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one die for his friends. Right? Greater love has no one than this. You know, that's Jesus's love, right? The ultimate sacrifice, the willing to forfeit his own life. In that moment, he was willing to say, I'm going to give my life up for you. That's the love that Jesus had for you and I. But maybe, just maybe, did that verse uh, that we know is John chapter 15, verse 13, uh, that saying that Jesus might have said in her, um, in her uh, being there with her, did that cross her mind? That greater love has no one than this, that one die for his friends. Was she baffled by the love that Jesus had for even those who murdered her son? Look at this verse with me here this morning. Romans chapter 5. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 for a moment here. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Notice here what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards you, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I can see a lot of people here, a lot of good people here this morning that, you know, uh, that I'm sure I'm willing to, to understand that there are people that are willing to die for you or that you would be willing to die for others. Families, friends. But for Mary to witness the people beating her son, right, to, uh, putting him upon the cross, piercing his hands and feet, mocking him, placing that crown of thorns on his head, and piercing him with that spear and all the other things that they did. How are you going to love someone that was abusing your child that way? Now, a good person, sure. You know, maybe we'll die for a good person. But someone who did this to your son? Uh, Mary must have been baffled. Would, would we lay our, down our lives for someone who mistreated our loved ones? You know, I think each and every one of us would say we'd struggle with that. That there's no way that we would do that. But do you think that she was overwhelmed with the love that her son had for all people? See, that's, a, that's good for us to contemplate this morning while we're taking the Lord's Supper. That he didn't just die for those who, you know, seemed to have it all together. But Paul said in these passages, he died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died for vile people like you and I. And are we thankful for that? Do we have that gratitude in our hearts when we're taking of the Lord's Supper? Is that where our mind is? 
Again, the, the, the greater love has no one than this, that one die for his friends. Are you thankful for that? What about focus? Let's think of the focus that Mary had. Imagine what she had just witnessed. When it came time to break that bread that represented his body, to drink the cup that represented the blood that was spilled, could she focus? You know, was she distracted by maybe the cute baby that was sitting next to her? Or was she thinking about, you know, what she was going to have for lunch that day or prepare for dinner? Or do you think that she was zeroed in, focusing on Jesus? I'm convinced that's what she was. He wasn't just her savior. Again, Jesus was her son. First Corinthians chapter 11. That was the passage that was read to us this morning. Of course, verses 23 through 26. Uh, talks about, again, Paul is reaffirming what Jesus taught about the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm sure that when she was taking that supper for the first time, again, that she was laser focused in on what was going on. Do you take the Lord's Supper personally? I know that she did. The focus was not her problem on that first day of the week or any first day of the week. This was personal for her, right? It's personal for us too, right? Sometimes we maybe look at this book as a a child's fairy tale book. But friends, this is history. This is actual history. And this man died for us. Jesus dying for the world means he died for each and every one of you. And do we take that personally? Right? This is not just a memorial that he asked for you to remember, but this is the memorial of our King, of our Savior. And again, where is your focus this morning when we partake of the Lord's Supper as we commune together? One more thing, a sorrow and guilt. You know, some uh, denominations will elevate Mary uh, to a, a position that she was sinless. I don't know if you've ever seen this before or noticed this before, but uh, they'll, they'll teach that Mary... Uh, was a sinless uh, individual. And they have to do this because they also teach this false doctrine of original sin, right? That, that we are born in sin, that we inherit the sin of Adam, and that we inherit the sin of our parents, and that we're born sinners. And so because of that, they, they had to come up with this thing called, you know, they call it the immaculate conception, right? That, that, that uh, Jesus didn't inherit the sin of Mary because Mary was sinless, Right. Because Mary never received the sins of her parents. Now, again, those both of those theories are false uh, of original sin and that Mary was sinless because Mary herself did not take that position. Uh, If you were to go to Luke chapter uh, one, uh, verse 47, we're going to notice here uh, as Mary is getting ready to uh, say this this song, the, the special prayer. Uh, that we often will refer to as the, the Magnificat. Uh, she says here in verse 47, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Right? Mary understood. She understood that she needed a Savior. Well, what's the implication of, uh, of needing a Savior? The implication is that just like you and I, and that everyone who ever lived, she caused her son to go to the cross as well. Right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, it's easy to blame others. You know, when we read the scriptures about Jesus going to the cross, we could easily b- blame the Roman soldiers who, who, and Pilate, uh, those, who, uh, those authorities, those Roman authorities who pierced the, the hands and feet of Jesus and put him to that cross. 
And we could blame them or we could blame the Jewish leaders of that day who they were just so uh, disgusted at Jesus, so upset with Jesus again that they sent him to Pilate, had him arrested under these false accusations and had him nailed to the cross. They rather had Barabbas, that that vile criminal, be uh, released rather than Jesus. And it's so easy for us to blame each of those groups as we read throughout Scripture. But Mary, she blames a part as well uh, for Jesus being on the cross. You and I do as well. See, when we realize, maybe during the Lord's Supper, that doesn't that make you stay a little bit more focused? That it's because of me. It's not any less because these, uh, these events happened some 2,000 years ago. But he died because of my negligence. He, he died because of my selfishness. He died because of my sins. Harry S. Truman uh, back in 1950. I don't know if we have anyone that's uh, you know, old enough to recall this, but if you recall or maybe you re- read about it in your history books, Harry S. Truman, uh, there was an assassination attempt against his life right, uh, back in 1950. And one of his uh, officers, one of the White House officers, actually took the bullet for him and he died. Well, Harry S. Truman saying uh, about that scene in deep somberness and sadness said, You just can't understand how a man feels when someone else dies for him. Well, I think we can, can't we? And we should, shouldn't we? Uh, Do you feel the weight of Jesus upon the cross? You know, Mary again says, I helped nail him there. He died for me. I need a savior just as much as anyone. And maybe that causes us a little bit more of an inward reflection. You know, again, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. "Let, Let a man examine himself. There in verse 28. But a man must examine himself. So in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Maybe we focus in on sorrow and guilt. And then finally this morning, just one more. And this one will be, will be short. Repentance and resolve. Repentance and resolve. Again, Mary, you know, I'm to blame just as much as anyone else. She realized that. She needed a savior. He had to die for me just as much as he died for anyone else. And as she listened, again, as she listened to his dying words, to the Apostle John, behold your mother, to her personally, behold your son. I don't know, but maybe she had a stronger resolve to live for him from that point forward, right? To be with him again, to direct her life in a manner that would make him proud, to be together once again. And again, when you and I realize that, uh, what he has done for us, how can we not feel that resolve? How can we not feel uh, that emotion that he went to the cross for you and I to live my life that I can be with him again? Again, when, when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. Right? We are proclaiming to one another that we are in agreement, that we are waiting for him to come again. And again, when, when we look at the Lord's Supper through the eyes of his mother, where, where's your focus? Are you, is, there, is there gratitude? Sorrow and guilt, repentance and resolve. Again, not much is said about Mary, uh, the dear mother of Jesus. But again, have you ever contemplated this question here this morning? What was her life like after the cross? Her life went on, no doubt. But when she assembled, again, when she assembled with the saints, were her emotions stirred every time they took the Lord's Supper? You know, just imagine, butterflies... Uh, dread, sorrow, uh, was she reliving the same events over and over again in her mind? 
But again, I can imagine that she was laser focused in on that when, as we ought to be. And if we can see things through Mary's eyes, I think we can do well this morning when we take the Lord's Supper. Because it can help us have that greater appreciation of just what we're doing. And let's never forget what he has done for us. And again, how he has asked us to remember him. You know, doing the math here this morning, there have been over 103,000 first day of the week since the church was established in Acts chapter 2. And God's people continue to this day to meet every Sunday to partake of this communion with the Lord and to remember him just as he has directed us, just as he has commanded us to remember him every first day of the week. And we need to remember uh, that even though we do this every first day of the week, and we don't want to lead this to some formalism or ritualism, to take the bread and simply eat it and to drink the cup and simply drink it and then go about our business. But it's much more than that, isn't it? Because we're reflecting on his life. We're thinking about his death. And it's my hope that this lesson will help us observe the Lord's Supper, again, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have observed it. And God help us to never forget the reason why we do But God help us to never forget how Mary must have observed it. This morning, as we uh, we close, as we uh, get ready to take that memorial here this morning, we also want to offer an invitation this morning. Maybe this morning uh, you've never been baptized into Christ. Maybe you've never had the opportunity to commune with the saints because you haven't put on Christ in baptism. You haven't contacted the blood of Jesus. We would love the opportunity to talk to you about that, to help and assist you with that. The Bible tells us we need to hear God's word and believe Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of our sins. Jesus has asked us to repent of our sins, to, to turn away from sin, to turn to a life uh, that we are going to be in agreement with his word and confess him before men and to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And at that point, the Lord will add you to his church. Or this morning, maybe you need the prayers of this congregation. Maybe you need the encouragement, the strength that only the brothers and sisters can uh, encourage you with this morning. And again, we would love the opportunity to assist you with that as well. Whatever your need may be this morning, please let us know as together we stand and sing.